Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Welcome to episode 105 of the GDPR Weekly Show. And coming up in this week's episode, we have news of a data breach at photo sharing site FreePick. We then have news of a data breach at Carnival Cruises. And also in the travel sector, we have news of a data breach at the Ritz Hotel in London. We then have news of a class action against Marriott Hotels following their data breach, which we brought to you in previous episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. We then have news of a data breach at the University of Brighton in the student halls of residence, which perhaps goes to further illustrate that data breaches don't just have to be about electronic data, they can be about paper data too. We then have news of a data breach from Experian in South Africa. And we then have an update from the Irish DPC about their ongoing investigation into Twitter data breaches. And also news that a probe has been launched into GDPR compliance of the popular mobile app TikTok. We then have news that the HMRC, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, are investigating 10,428 COVID-19 related phishing scams. We then have a high court ruling which looks at the whole issue of whether disclosure of information to your GP is or is not sensitive data under GDPR. We then have news that the former security chief at Uber has been charged with attempting to cover up a data breach. And finally this week we end with details of a letter being sent from members of parliament to the information commissioner Elizabeth Denham with their concerns over the government's handling of data throughout the COVID-19 crisis and what action they would like her to take. So, as normal, a mixed selection of articles for you. We hope that you find the information in them useful and informative. As always, if you have any feedback, we're always open to receiving feedback from you, which you can do by emailing feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. We do read every single piece of feedback which we receive, but unfortunately due to the volume of feedback we receive, we're not able to always respond to each piece of feedback individually. But we do take all your suggestions on board, and wherever possible, we incorporate your suggestions for improvement into future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. We begin this week with news of a data breach at FreePick, a website dedicated to providing access to high-quality free photos and design graphics. FreePick made it official after users started grumbling on social media this week about receiving shady-looking breach notification emails in their inboxes. FreePick formally disclosed the security breach today, confirming the authenticity of the emails it's been sending to registered users for the past few days. According to the company's official statement, the security breach occurred after a hacker, or hackers, used a SQL injection vulnerability to gain access to one of its databases which stored user data. FreePick said the hacker obtained usernames and passwords for the oldest 8.3 million users registered on its FreePick and Flat Icon websites. FreePick didn't say when the breach took place or when it found out about it, however the company says it has notified authorities as soon as it learned of the incident and began investigating the breach and what the hacker had accessed. FreePick said not all users had passwords associated with their accounts and the hacker had only taken emails for some. The company puts this number at some 4.5 million, representing users who use federated logins, Google, Facebook or Twitter, to log into their accounts. For the remaining 3.77 million users, the attacker got their email address and a hash of their password, the company added. 
For 3.55 million of users, the method used to hash the password is bcrypt, and for the remaining 229,000 users, the method was sorted MD5. Since then, we have updated the hash of all users to bcrypt. The company said it's now in the process of notifying all impacted users with customised emails, depending on what was taken. These emails are going out to free pick and flat icon users, depending on which service users had registered on. Those who had a password hashed with sorted MD5 have now had their password cancelled and have received an email to urge them to choose a new password and to change their password if it was shared with any other site. And of course, ideally, you should always use a different password on every site anyway. Freepit said users who got their password hashed with Bcrypt received an email suggesting them to change their password, especially if it was an easy-to-guess password. Users who only had email leaked were notified, but no special action is required from them. Freepick is one of today's most popular sites on the internet, currently ranked number 97 on the Alexa Top 100 sites list. Flat Icon is not far behind, ranked number 668. When EQT acquired Freepick at the end of May this year, the company claimed the Freepick service had a community of more than 20 million registered users. Users registered on Slidesgo and other of the Freepick company websites don't appear to have been impacted by this data breach. If we receive any update on this data breach from FreePit, we will, of course, bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. As if COVID wasn't giving it enough problems, the cruise line Carnival said it had been affected by a ransomware attack last Saturday. It's understood that the personal information of Carnival's passengers and staff may have been stolen by the hackers. Carnival said it detected the so-called ransomware attack on Saturday and immediately contacted the necessary authorities. It admitted the hackers who targeted one particular Carnival brand had downloaded files which could result in potential claims from guests, employees, shareholders and regulatory agencies. But it declined to reveal which brand or how many passengers had been affected or what personal data had been stolen. Carnival is investigating what happened and has taken steps to beef up the security of its IT systems. As well as the Carnival brand, the company also operates under the brands of Princess Cruises, Holland America Line, Seabourn, P&O, Costa Cruises, Aida Cruises and Cunard. In a normal year, Carnival hosts almost 13 million guests, leading to fears that the personal details of thousands of customers may have been siphoned off by criminals. Carnival said that although it believed no other brand had been targeted by the hackers, it warned that there could be no assurance that other information technology systems of others would not have been affected. Consumer Group Witch urged people who had booked cruises with Carnival to check their bank accounts and credit reports, change passwords and guard against suspicious emails from fraudsters. If we receive any update on this, either from Carnival or from the ICO, we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. What's up, Isabella? I'm fed up. I wish I had a new job. Have you tried Jubal? Jubal.org. We help people find jobs. Great. I will try it now. Staying in the travel and hospitality industry, the Ritz Hotel in London has launched an investigation into a data breach in which scammers may have posed the staff members of the hotel to steal credit card data from customers. In a series of messages posted on Twitter, Dated August the 15th, the Luxia Hotel chain said that on August the 12th, the company was made aware of a potential data breach within its food and beverage reservation system. Ritz London added that they may have led to the compromise of some of our clients' personal data. While the hotel said that the security incident did not include any credit card detail or payment information, 
The leak data may have been used in a social engineering scam designed to steal more valuable financial information straight from the source. The Daily Breach was reported by the BBC, who said that scammers had phoned rich restaurant reservation holders with exact details of their bookings while requesting confirmation and payment card details. The fraudsters, pretending to be employees of the Ritz Hotel, used ID spoofing to appear to be from the hotel. One guest, speaking to the BBC, said the scammer called her a day before she was due to visit the Ritz for afternoon tea. After requesting that she confirmed her details, the fraudster said her card had been declined and requested a second payment card. Information in hand, the scam artist then tried to make a number of transactions exceeding £1,000 from retailer Argos. However, the bank for the guest spotted the odd payments. Perhaps aware that this was likely to happen, the scammer then called again, but this time pretended to be from a bank in order to obtain the three-digit security code from the back of the payment card, which would authorise future transactions. Another guest told the BBC that the same tactics were used on her, but she dismissed the call after the fraudster on the other end of the line was not able to provide details relating to the Ritz Hotel, knowledge that a true employee would possess. It's not yet known how widespread this scam is or how many people have been targeted. The Ritz Hotel has emailed its customers, emphasising that staff would not call them after a reservation is made. We immediately launched an investigation to identify the cause of the breach, which is ongoing, to find out what happened, how, and how we can prevent this from happening again, the Ritz Hotel said. The hotel also confirmed that the Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, have been informed of this data breach. Again, if we receive any update from either the Ritz Hotel or the ICO, we will, of course, bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Witch Show. Regular listeners to the GDPR Weekly Show will know that we have mentioned the Marriott Hotel data breach several times. Potentially, the data breach at the Marriott Hotel Group will lead to a penalty of £99 million from the UK Information Commissioner's Office, although that amount is to be appealed in September. And we expect, given the turmoil in the hospitality industry, that the ICO will reduce the penalty to a level more commensurate with the turnover of the Marriott Hotel Group this year. However, the ICO is not the only people seeking to impose a financial penalty on the Marriott Hotel Group for the data breach. There's also a class action lawsuit for customers of the Marriott Hotel Group whose information was breached by the hotel. The legal challenge has been filed by Martin SFP Bryant, a UK resident, on behalf of millions of hotel guests domiciled in England and Wales, whose private data was exposed in the breach. The High Court action seeks compensation on behalf of millions of hotel guests who made reservations at hotel brands within the Starwood Group. Starwood Group was acquired by Marriott International in 2016. The case states that the cyber attack was a result of a failure to take adequate steps to ensure the security of guests' personal data and to prevent unauthorised and unlawful processing of that data. According to the lawsuit, all former guests who stayed in the hotel belonged to any of the following brands before 10th of September 2018 are covered. The brands are Sheraton Hotels and Resorts, Element Hotels, St Regis, W Hotels, Westin Hotels and Resorts, The Luxury Collection, Aloft Hotels, Le Meridian Hotel and Resorts, Tribute Portfolio, Design Hotels and Four Points by Sheraton. Bryant is being represented by Horsfeld, an international law firm specialising in group actions. Those eligible to participate in the litigation face no fees, nor do they face any financial risk from the lawsuit, which is being funded by Harbour Litigation Funding. 
Personal data of nearly 7 million British deaths was compromised in the Marriott breach, the ICO confirmed last year. For their part, Marriott disclosed the hack in November 2018, stating that an unidentified group of hackers had accessed the names, addresses, passport numbers and contact details of customers from the Starwood Hotel's reservation system. The breach was thought to have started in July 2014 and continued until September 2018, according to the company, and impacted more than 300 million people. This data breach is separate to the second data breach, which Marriott Hotel disclosed in April, when they found a breach which started in mid-January 2020 and came to notice of Marriott's IT security team only in late February 2020. In that breach, personal details of up to 5.2 million deaths were exposed, the company believes. It said that that security incident involved an application that was used by its hotels to provide services to guests. The hatches obtained the login credentials of two employees at a franchise property and then used that access to steal the personal information of up to 5.2 million deaths from Marriott Systems. So we wait to see what the outcome of this high court case is, but potentially it could cost Marriott Hotels many millions of pounds to settle this class action. Once we have any update, we will of course bring it to you in the GDPR Weekly Show. I love this show, but I've got GDPR questions and don't know what to do. It's simple. Just follow the instructions coming up and the guys at GDPR Weekly Show will help within 24 hours. All you need to do is email helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com with the details of your GDPR issue and one of our specialists will get straight back to you. Wicked! Thanks, Mike! News of a data breach of a different kind now, and a reminder that a loss or theft of paper documents or physical documents is just as much a data breach as a loss of electronic data as far as GDPR is concerned. This case centres around Brighton University, where students' belongings have been disposed of by halls of residence. Hannah Mullins and two other students at the university made appointments to collect their items and arrived to find them all gone. She said thousands of pounds of goods and sentimental items had been lost. The students were returning to their halls of residence five months after being made to leave because of the coronavirus restrictions, but of course they returned expecting to be able to collect all their possessions and not to find that they'd been thrown away. The operator of the student accommodation, Kaplan Student Living Scheme, said the rooms had been cleared in error. Miss Mullins, who was forced to leave the accommodation at the start of the coronavirus pandemic, returned home to London with just an overnight bag. When Miss Mullins, her twin sister Holly and their mother Alexandra arrived at the privately run halls on Thursday and saw the empty room, they assumed the items were in storage. Holly Mullins said, We went to reception to ask where it all was and they didn't know. Then they told us to check the bins because the rooms had started being cleared on Monday. The women found piles of items, including other students' passports and private documents, but nothing of Hannah's. Now, of course, it's things like the passports, which would constitute a very severe data breach. Hannah Mullins said, It was distressing. I felt violated. A lot of stuff can be replaced, but they can't compensate for the emotional distress they put me through. It's horrible to think that someone's gone through your stuff without your permission. Hannah said, As there were daily bin collections, her possessions, including her professional camera and art supplies for a graphic design degree, clothes and makeup would be long gone. She said bank statements, medication, photographs and sentimental items from holidays had also been taken. Mrs Mullins said it's worrying that somebody could now have all her information. We saw other people's documents in that rubbish pile. Nothing had been shredded. A spokesperson for Kaplan Living Brighton said we have been working closely with students who returned home before the end of term due to the COVID-19 pandemic in order to arrange for them to select their belongings. 
We became aware today that two rooms have been cleared in error and we are currently investigating how that could have happened. This should not have occurred and we offer our sincere apologies to the two students affected. We have reached out to the two students affected and will of course compensate them for the loss of any items that have been cleared. However, Mrs Mullins said no different chaplain had yet contacted her daughter and added she believed the clearance had affected many more than just two students. The halls are independent from the University of Brighton, but a university spokesman said it would be offering its full support to all affected students as they seek appropriate redress. We have been unable to establish from Kaplan whether the incident has been reported to the ICO or not, or indeed whether it's even been recorded in their own data breach register, but we will continue to pursue that with them. We travel to South Africa now, where Experian has suffered a major breach of customers' personal information, affecting an estimated 24 million South Africans and nearly 800,000 businesses. Experian revealed in a statement yesterday that an individual fraudulently claimed to represent one of its clients and then requested services from the firm, prompting the release of the data. Experian sought to play down the seriousness of the incident by claiming that this information is provided in the ordinary course of business or is publicly available. It did not clarify exactly what customer records were taken, but said that the information did not contain consumer credit or financial information. Experian also stayed tight-lipped on the number of customers affected, although one of the authorities it has engaged with following the incident, the South African Banking Risk Information Centre, claimed 24 million consumers and 793,749 businesses were involved. It explained that South African banks may have been working behind the scenes to identify how their customers may have been affected. The compromise of personal information can create opportunities for criminals to impersonate you, but does not guarantee access to your banking profile or accounts, a spokesman said. However, criminals can use this information to trick you into disclosing your confidential banking details. Experienced customers in South Africa have been urged not to reveal any additional personal information if they receive unsolicited phone calls or contact online and they've also been urged to change their passwords regularly. Experian claimed that the individual involved in the incident has already had their hardware confiscated and the stolen data has been secured and deleted. Our investigations do not indicate that any misappropriated data has been used for fraudulent purposes, it said. Our investigations also show that the suspect is intended to use the data to create marketing leads to offer insurance and credit-related services. Experian South Africa confirmed that its own IT infrastructure had not been compromised in the data breach. This, of course, is not the first data breach to affect Experian across the world. We've had cases here in the UK, which we've reported in previous episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. It would appear that this incident has now come to a close, but should we receive any update, we will, of course, bring it to you as soon as possible. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. An update now on the ongoing investigation by the IRIS DPC, their equivalent to RICO, into data breaches at Twitter. The DPC began investigating Twitter in November 2018, completing its probe earlier this year and submitting a draft decision to other EU data protection agencies for review in May this year, just ahead of the second anniversary of GDPR's introduction. In a statement on the latest developments, Graham Doyle, the DPC's Deputy Commissioner, said the Irish Data Protection Commission, DPC, issued a draft decision to other concerned supervisory authorities, CSAs, on the 22nd of May 2020 in relation to its inquiry into Twitter. 
A number of objections were raised by CSAs and the DPC engaged in a consultation process with them. However, following consultation, a number of objections were maintained and the DPC has now referred the matter to the European Data Protection Board, the EDPB, under Article 65 of GDPR. Under the regulation's one-stop-shop mechanism, cross-border cases are handled by a lead regulator, typically where the business has established its regional base. For many tech companies, that's the Republic of Ireland, and so the DPC has an oversized role in the regulation of Citizens Valley's handling of personal data. However, this situation does also mean that the DPC has a considerable backlog of highly anticipated complaints relating to tech giants including Apple, Facebook, Google, LinkedIn and Twitter. The regulator also continues to face criticism for not yet getting it over the line in any of these complaints and investigations pertaining to big tech companies. So the Twitter breach case is being especially closely watched as it looks set to be the Iris DPC's first enforcement decision in a cross-border GDPR case. Last year, the Iris Commissioner Helen Dixon said the first of these decisions would be coming early in 2020. In the event, we're past halfway through the year with still no enforcement to show for it, although it was has to be said that no one anticipated COVID-19 when Helen Dixon made that statement. The latest delay in the Twitter case is a consequence of the disagreements between the DPC and other regional watchdogs, which under the rules of GDPR have a right to raise objections on a draft decision where users in their country are also affected. It's not clear what the specific objections are, or indeed what Ireland's regulator has decided in what should be a relatively straightforward case given its breach, not a complaint about a core element of a data mining business model. Far more complex complaints are still waiting to be investigated. Doyle confirmed that a complaint pertaining to WhatsApp's legal basis for sharing user data with Facebook remains the next most progressed in the stack of work to be done. So given the DPC's Twitter breach draft decision hasn't been universally accepted by Europe's data watchdogs, it's all but inevitable that the Facebook WhatsApp investigation will go through the same objection process. Article 65 of GDPR sets out a process for handling objections on draft decisions. It allows for one month for DPAs to reach a two-thirds majority, with the possibility for a further extension of another month, which would of course push the decision on the Twitter case back into late October. If there's still not enough voting in favour at that point, a further two weeks are allowed for EDPB members to reach a simple majority. If DPAs are still split, the board chair, currently Andrea Zelenek, has a deciding vote, so the body's role in major decisions over big tech looks set to be very important. Given these latest developments, and given that all uh, data protection activity within Europe is being slowed at the moment by the impact of COVID-19, not least because, of course, in lots of cases, staff are working from home rather than in the office. Our personal feel is that it now looks very unlikely that we're going to see any judgment on the Twitter case until at least the end of November and potentially possibly even into the beginning of 2021. But we will, of course, keep you updated. It's a very important case. And so as soon as we have any news, either from the DPC or from the EDPB, then we will bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Dutch privacy organisation SOMI claims TikTok falls short in protecting young users and that it is likely to be violating GDPR. SOMI alleges that TikTok is failing in its obligation to protect children who use its service and that it's likely that it collects and distributes the personal data of minors to unknown third parties, some of whom are in China, in violation of GDPR. SOMI, a non-profit organisation that advocates for data privacy and consumer issues in the Netherlands and around Europe, 
is urging concerned parents from anywhere in the world to contact it via its website and register for a small fee as it gathers information ahead of a possible collective legal claim against the China-owned social media platform. The website has been set up at https colon slash slash tiktokclaim.org. Somi co-founder Cor Vizileth said, Europe has created a GDPR to give consumers control over what personal data and to protect minors in the digital world. TikTok consistently violates similar standards in countries outside the EU on several counts. He went on to say this is a major cause for concern, not only because it happens without the user's consent or even their knowledge, but especially because the company is known to have committed such offences in the past. Children are insufficiently protected against unwanted contacts with unknown adults online. That's why we decided to make a stand, he said. He went on to say the first step is thorough research, only then can we build a potentially successful claim. To this end, we are now collecting user data and research reports. However, the purpose of our public action is not so much to obtain monetary compensation, that is just the cherry on the cake. Our primary objective is to make sure that children are well protected online and that individual consumers are not powerless against the producers of popular apps. Together, we are stronger and the claim is more powerful. Somi's principal complaint is that TikTok was warned last year that children are not being adequately protected against online contact with adults who are not known to them and that parental supervision of the service may be wholly insufficient. It said that TikTok allows the creation of user accounts by minors from the age of 13 and upwards, which for one thing is easily circumvented by under-13s, and that's because 13 is below the age of majority in Europe. It therefore requires permission from a guardian to process the data. That TikTok processes more sensitive data such as device information, location and user activity even when inactive, that TikTok lacks transparency around information, communication and rules for subjects to exercise their data rights and around what data it lets third parties access and how and what they do with it, and that TikTok's design and default settings fail to guarantee data protection under GDPR. Somi also believes that TikTok has not taken appropriate technical and organisational measures to ensure its app is secure in accordance with GDPR and that it is likely to be transferring data outside the EU. In this regard, it cites a June 2020 research paper produced by security firm Penetrum, which claims that nearly 40% of IP addresses used by TikTok are from China and can be linked to Alibaba. Again, a breach of GDPR as China is not considered a safe third country under the regulation. A TikTok spokesperson told Computer Weekly, protecting our users' privacy is a top priority and we strongly reject any claims to the contrary. TikTok is an app for people age 13 and over and our terms of service and privacy policy clearly set out our approach and commitment to safeguarding user data. For users under the age of 18, we have also developed a separate summary of the privacy policy written in a style designed to make it easy as possible for our teenage users to understand. The spokesperson went on to say, We take compliance with applicable laws and regulations on data protection, including GDPR, very seriously. Our user data is currently stored in the US and Singapore and we have also announced our intention to establish a European data centre in Ireland. TikTok is not available in China, and we have never provided data to the Chinese government, nor would we do so if asked. We expect that this story is going to run on for quite some period of time, and so we will bring you regular updates in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. What's up, Mike? I'm fed up. I wish I had a new job. Have you tried Jubal? Jubal Jubal.org. We help people find jobs. Great. I'll try it now. More than 10,000 email, SMS, social media and phone scams exploiting the COVID-19 pandemic are being investigated by Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, HMRC, here in the UK. 
The figures published following the Freedom of Information request by the Lanup Accountancy Group highlight how the health and economic crisis has provided major scamming opportunities for cyber criminals. The data showed that May was the month in which the highest number of phishing scams were reported by members of the public to HMRC at 5,152, representing a 337% rise compared to March when lockdown measures were first introduced in the UK. This was followed by 2,558 reports in June and 2,105 in April. The total since March comes to 10,428. Government programmes introduced to support businesses and workers impacted by the lockdown have been a common target for scammers. Examples include emails purporting to be from HMRC regarding the government's coronavirus job retention scheme, otherwise known as a furlough scheme, which attempted to get business owners to reveal their bank account information, while another offered a bogus tax rebate under the guise of the Self-Employment Income Support Scheme. The Freedom of Information request also showed that that 106 comedy-related websites have been requested for removal since March, with April the highest month of 42, followed by 24 in May and 17 in March. In May, it has previously been revealed that HMRC formally asked internet service providers to remove 292 scam web addresses exploiting the coronavirus outbreak. And just last month, research revealed that over 10% of all phishing attempts in quarter 1 of 2020 were related to COVID-19. I guess the lesson to be learned from this is if you receive any email relating to COVID-19, and particularly the COVID-19 scheme such as the furlough scheme or the self-employment scheme, that you double-check it for authenticity before you provide any details in reply to the email. An interesting case to come out of the UK High Court is concerned when data given to your GP is or is not considered data under GDPR. The case arose because of a claim by a Mr. Scott against the LGBT Foundation that they had caused him damage by passing information which he had given them onto his GP and his GP has subsequently recorded it on his medical record. And this Mr. Stock claimed would cause him damage because he was employed in the nuclear energy and he had not disclosed some of the things he had disclosed to the LGBT Foundation to his employer. And if his employer were to request a medical reference from his GP, his GP could include the information that had come from the Foundation and therefore potentially he could lose his job. To give a bit of background, the LGBT Foundation provides services including counselling and health advice. In this case, Mr Stott sought to access the charity services by completing the self-referral form in 2016. The form gave an option for the self-referring individual to consent to information being disclosed to the GP and stated that the charity would break confidentiality without the individual's consent if there was reason to be seriously concerned about their welfare. Mr. Stock duly completed the form and gave his GP's details on the form, and he also stated on the form that he no longer wished to be alive, detailed a previous suicide attempt, said that he had recently been self-harming, and that he continued to suffer problems from drug use. A sessional health and wellbeing officer at the charity conducted an intake assessment for Mr. Stock to ascertain what support would be best for him. She told him of the confidentiality policy, including the provision that any information he disclosed would be passed on if the charity considered him to be at risk. In this interview, he gave further details of his drug use, self-harm and suicidal thoughts. The health officer paused the assessment and consulted a colleague who advised us to inform Mr. Stock that they would be contacting his GP because they had concerns about his welfare. 
The charity included that it was at that time unable to provide him with the services he sought from them because of his ongoing drug use. They passed the information to Mr. Stott's GP via a telephone call. Now, it's this telephone call which has given rise to this judgment. What the judges said in this case is that because the information was transferred orally via a telephone call, that it doesn't count as personal data under GDPR. And therefore, Mr. Strott has no claim against the foundation. The foundation also gave themselves a backup clause in that they said, well, GDPR allows for the transfer of personal information without consent even, where it's in the vital interests of the data subject. And there's a strong argument to say if someone's indicating that they're having suicidal thoughts and that they need help, that that's very much in their vital interest that you disclose that information to a house professional. And in that, I would agree with them. But the question really then is whether a verbal conversation is data under the terms of GDPR. After all, a written document is data under GDPR, an electronic record is data under GDPR, but... This ruling would clearly show that a verbal conversation is not data under GDPR, even though it may then be subsequently recorded within a data recording system, within a patient record. Now, of itself, I think in this case, as I say, because of the vital interest, I don't think the GPs or the foundation had a case to answer. And I think that, you know, the vital interest clause would more than cover the disclosure of the information. But it does open up a whole can of worms compared to the bigger picture. What if this hadn't been a life-threatening situation? What if it had just been some other information that the foundation had passed on to the GP? It might be medically sensitive information. As we all know, medically sensitive information has special privileges under GDPR. Are you then saying that none of those privileges occur if that information is transferred verbally even though subsequently that information may be transcribed into a computer system. Now, at the point it's in the computer system, it clearly does become covered by GDPR, but that would only cover what happened to it after it had reached the GP and it had got to there. It wouldn't cover the bit where it got to the GP in the first place. And so this judgment has to be taken. Mr. Scott has not been awarded any damages. It's not yet known if he will appeal. But it does, as I say, open up a much wider picture, which I think is going to need probably further consideration by the ICO, at least, at some point. And I can see this potentially even going back to the European Data Protection Board for clarification. So really at this moment, just bringing this to your attention so that you're aware of the situation of this case, because it does have some fairly wide-reaching consequences, and perhaps does further indicate that if you want to keep data away from GDPR, the best thing you can do is just simply keep it verbal. Doubtless this is something we will come back to in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show once things have become clearer from either the ICO or the EDPB. Help! I love this show, but I've got GDPR questions and don't know what to do. It's simple. Just follow the instructions coming up and the guys at GDPR Weekly Show will help within 24 hours. All you need to do is email helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com with the details of your GDPR issue and one of our specialists will get straight back to you. Bye kids. Thanks Mike. The former Uber security chief has been charged over an alleged data breach cover-up. It's understood that the former chief security officer Uber has been charged with attempting to cover up a highly damaging 2016 data breach. 
personal data belonging to around 57 million customers and employees was exposed in the 2016 hack and the ride-hailing company's reputation was severely damaged when news of the scandal eventually broke. The US Department of Justice has charged Joseph Sullivan with felony obstruction of justice, alleging that he deliberately concealed details of the hack from federal investigators. Sullivan, who joined Uber in 2015 from Facebook, is also accused of agreeing to pay the hackers $100,000 out of funds from the company's bug bounty program, which allows security researchers to report flaws in exchange for fees. The hackers were allegedly required to sign a non-disclosure agreement about the data breach. This, prosecutors say, falsely claimed that the attackers had failed to access or steal company data. Ultimately, it was revealed that the cybercriminals had accessed and downloaded an Uber database containing personally identifiable information, PII, associated with millions of customers and employees. This database included driver license numbers for some 600,000 Uber drivers. Silicon Valley is not the Wild West, said US attorney David Anderson. We expect good corporate citizenship. We expect prompt reporting of criminal conduct. We expect cooperation with our investigations. We will not tolerate corporate cover-ups. We will not tolerate illegal hush money payments. Deputy Special Agent in Charge, Trade Fair, added that the case represents an extreme example of a prolonged attempt to subvert law enforcement. We hope companies stand up and take notice, Fair said. Do not help criminal hackers cover their tracks. Do not make the problem worse for your customers and do not cover up criminal attempts to steal people's data. Bradford Williams, a spokesperson for Sullivan, insisted that the former executive had complied with company policy and acted lawfully. From the outset, Mr Sullivan and his team collaborated closely with legal communications and other relevant teams at Uber in accordance with the company's written policies, he said. Those policies made clear that the Uber's legal department, and not Mr Sullivan or his group, was responsible for deciding whether and to whom the matter should be disclosed. Uber did not disclose details of the security breach until November 2017. The ride-hailing giant's new CEO revealed the breach had taken place shortly after joining the firm. In September 2018, Uber agreed to pay $148 million in settlement to settle claims lodged by all 50 states and Washington, D.C. As part of the settlement, the company agreed to implement a new corporate ethics framework aimed at encouraging employees to report concerning behaviour. Uber also agreed to reform its data security practices with the help of an independent third-party consultancy. The two hackers responsible for the breach were prosecuted in California, with both pleading guilty on October 30, 2019, to computer fraud conspiracy charges. Both are now awaiting sentencing, with a complaint stating that they specifically targeted other technology companies following the Uber incident. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. And we end this week with news that a group of MPs have written to Elizabeth Denham, the UK Information Commissioner, with concerns about the government's approach to data protection and privacy during the COVID-19 pandemic, and also the ICO's approach to ensuring that the government is held to account. In a copy of the letter, which we've seen, they say, Dear Elizabeth Denham, we are writing to you about the government's approach to data protection and privacy during the COVID-19 pandemic, and also the ICO's approach to ensuring the government is held to account. During the crisis, the government has paid scant regard to both privacy concerns and data protection duties. It has engaged private contractors with problematic reputations to process personal data, as highlighted by Open Democracy and Foxglove. It has built a data store of unproven benefit. It chose to build a contact tracing proximity app that centralised and stored more data than was necessary, without sufficient safeguards, as highlighted by the Human Rights Committee. On releasing the app for trial, 
It failed to notify yourselves in advance of its data protection impact assessment, a fact you highlighted to the Human Rights Committee. This was something we brought to your course in a previous episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Most recently, the government has admitted breaching their data protection obligations by failing to conduct an impact assessment prior to the launch of their test and trace programme. They have only acknowledged this failing in the face of a threat of legal action by the Open Rights Group. The government have highlighted your role at every turn, citing you as an advisor, looking at the detail of their work and using you to justify their actions. On Monday 20th of July, Matt Hancock indicated his disregard for data protection and safeguards, saying to Parliament that, I will not be held back by bureaucracy and claiming against the stated position of the government's own legal service that three data protection impact assessments covered all of the necessary. In this context, parliamentarians and the public need to be able to rely on the regulator. However, the government not only appears unwilling to understand its legal duties, it also seems to lack any sense that it needs your advice, except as a shield against criticism. Regarding test and trace, it is imperative that you take action to establish public confidence. A trusted system is critical to protecting public health. The ICO has powers to compel documents to understand data processing, contractual relations and the like, information notices. The ICO has powers to assess what needs to change, assessment notices. The ICO can demand particular changes are made, enforcement notices. Ultimately, the ICO has powers to fine the government if it fails to adhere to the standards which the ICO is responsible for upholding. ICO action is urgently required by Parliament and the public have to to have confidence that their data is being treated safely and legally in the current COVID-19 pandemic and beyond. And the letter is signed by 22 cross-party MPs, including Sir Ed Davey MP, Clive Lewis MP, Caroline Lucas MP, John McDonnell MP, Leila Moran MP and Tommy Shepherd MP. At the time of going to broadcast, we've not had a response to this letter from Elizabeth Denham or from the Information Commissioner's Office other than to acknowledge receipt of the letter. And so we expect this is something we will return to in next week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I hope you found it useful. I hope you found it entertaining. Please do let me know. Let me have your feedback by sending an email to podcast.insurity.co.uk You can find out more about us at Insurity at www.insurity.co.uk and I look forward to speaking to you again same time, same place next week. Have a good week everybody and remember to keep your data safe. And cut. That's a wrap. The GDPR Weekly Show is an Insurity production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash insurity. Until next time, bye bye.